0: It's a rainy Monday morning, and I couldn't help thinking, what a perfect time to talk about the grace of God. And so it occurs to me we've not been in the Book of Romans for a couple of weeks between uh, just going through our ongoing eschatology study and also the fact that we've been moving my in-laws out here. Um, Just been a bunch of time has gone by, and I got to thinking about it, and uh, we're in a really great section in the Book of Romans where it helps to solidify our understanding of the law and grace. And understanding how we are saved truly by god's grace, appropriated by faith, but it is completely apart from the works of the law or our own attempts at uh, producing works that would earn righteousness in some way or even keep our righteousness. You know the idea of our salvation being rooted completely, built upon totally the grace of god is a uh, is is a topic that we need to understand it's a truth that we need to stand on. Uh, and embrace. And uh, so I thought we would jump back into our study in the book of Romans this morning. We left off last time, finishing up in chapter 4, talking about the idea of earning grace. Can that even be? And we uh, you know, concluded from the scripture that that's really not possible. You can't earn grace. If we feel we can earn grace, then it's not really grace we're after. We're after some version of a righteousness that we have sort of achieved or paid for, <coughs> in some sense, on our own. And so this idea is what Paul is, uh, is, has built to at this point, and of course the whole book of Romans to one degree or another deals with this subject on some level, and so uh, we find ourselves again in this, uh, uh, in this topic today. So if you would, open your Bible with me in hand, of course, I, I assume. Uh, we're going to be in uh, looking at verse 5. I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 3, but we're going to really look at today verses 5 through 8 specifically. So in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was imputed or credited or reckoned to his account. Okay, This is what the word speaks of here. Um, the word imputed, uh, we'll see here in a moment, same idea. This is what's ultimately the heart of it. Uh, it was accounted to him for righteousness, his belief. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but is debt. but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom uh, God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those, as uh, quoting from Psalm 32, the first two verses, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin." The idea of imputing something and not imputing something else. Um, so um, this subject, this idea of the difference between law and grace, and they are massively different. They are not the same thing. Uh, I, I, I really try to emphasize that point because um, the natural tendency of people is to feel like they can earn a right place before God. Uh, unfortunately, even within the church, the body of Christ, that Body of believers that has been bought and paid for, think of the implications of that, bought and paid for by the shed blood of Christ on the cross, uh, are starting to go back to, in many quarters, you see this on YouTube channels all over the place, you hear it in gospel presentations, you see it in discussions uh, evangelistically, there seems to be this seeping back in to the gospel, this idea that there is something that we do to earn it, Uh we receive it by faith and sometimes that is seen as well we do that right i mean that's a do that's a work that we do we receive it we believe right well here this is the grand passage at least in my view this is one of the the most important passages in in scripture in understanding the difference between these things notice how simply paul puts it but to but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly his face his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, let me back up a little bit. Here in uh, uh, in the earlier verses, three through four, and then into into verse five, Paul makes the uh, really draws attention to Abraham as the great example of this truth, the great um, model that we would look at of somebody who you would typically associate. Um, you know, um, uh, well, let me put it this way: Abraham is pointed to by Paul. As the founder of the Hebrew of the Hebrew people, right, Abraham is called by God out of the earth of the Chaldees, and he becomes the first of what we would call the Jews and It is from him that Israel ultimately springs, and so it is the promise given to him that he believes by faith and is accounting for righteousness, the idea that God is going to make of him a great nation, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in heaven, the seas on the sands on the seashore, and this kind of thing. He believes this, and it is accounted to him for righteousness. And so Abraham, who is the founder of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, I mean, the nation is formed uh, through the sons of Jacob. But Jacob is a son of Isaac, is a son of Abraham. And so Abraham is seen as the father of God's chosen people. Now, when we think of God's chosen people, we think of those who are under the covenant of the law. And so therefore, when we typically think of this side of the... Equation. We think, well, this is uh, this. These are people that are bound by the works of the law and this kind of thing. Um, but Paul here, and also in Galatians, uh, by the way, uh, chapter three, verse seventeen, makes this point that Abraham is pointed to, the founder of the of the Jewish people, but he is pointed to not as a an example of somebody who is justified by the law, because as Paul says in Galatians three seventeen. Abraham was justified by faith 430 years before the law. So before Moses ever, you know, was given the law on Mount Sinai, four centuries plus, many generations earlier, Abraham is justified by faith. Now, it is an epoch-making truth for us to recognize this. And I'm not trying to overstate it, I'm not trying to sound hyperbolic, I'm not trying to exaggerate this thing. This point is a massive point. In Galatians, we're told the purpose of the law. The law is given to Moses, again, 430 years after Abraham. And the law is given to Israel, the presumption always being that if you will do everything that's in the law, you will, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be saved, you'll be right with God, and that kind of thing. Now, that's different than saying that Israel is the covenant people of God because they received the law. Paul makes that case as well in Romans. They were given the oracles of God, so there's tremendous benefit in being Jewish. You are a covenant people because God chose you and gave you the law. However, that's a different thing than saying that an individual person is saved by obedience to the law. The nation is set aside covenantally uh, with the law, but in terms of their salvation, like eternal salvation, that was something that was never intended to be provided by the law. Now, we've said this before, as we make our way through uh, the book of Romans, this truth will continue to come to the fore, but the law is not the problem per se. We're the problem. We can't keep the law. We are inherently sinful. It's not just that we do sin. We sin because it's what we are. We are by nature fallen, depraved. Uh, dead in sin. We are this by nature. Therefore, that's what we produce. We produce uh, uh, works that are not righteousness earning or that kind of thing. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, um, it is significant that David um, is the one that Paul goes to next when he talks about this idea of an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that does not come by the works of the law, but rather is imputed or reckoned to the ledger uh, purely by God. It's like, you know, God took he sees this thing that's empty on our part, and he fills it with the righteousness that is his. Uh, again, we've quoted oftentimes uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is something that he did. This is all of God, not of anything that we do. Uh, hence, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Galatians two twenty twenty one, 21. But here back in Romans, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, again, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then he goes on to say, uh, to quote David. Uh, again, just as David also describes the blessedness, the richness of blessing uh, uh, of the man to whom God imputes righteousness, Apart from the law. In other words, this righteousness again is reckoned to the account, and that is the blessing of it. Um, David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds again are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, what's significant about this is that David, of course, is under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? Uh, Squarely. I mean, he's a king of Israel long after the law is given. But this, this, these words that are quoted by Paul are taken from Psalm 32, which along with Psalm 51, these are partner psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. These are psalms that were written uh, during the time and in response to the time of David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, if you remember the story, you know the the mortifyingly sinful nature of it. You know that David sees Bathsheba bathing on the sort of the top patio roof area of her house. David lingers over uh, that view. Sends for as king, he sends some of his servants to go and get her. Uh, he takes her to bed. Ultimately, they uh, they commit sexual sin and she becomes pregnant. And so if she hadn't become pregnant, this might have never been known by much of anybody, but she becomes pregnant. And so David uh, sends for her husband, Uriah. Bathsheba is married, and David, you know, it's adultery, He commits adultery with her. And uh, he calls for her husband, Uriah, who is a very upright man, a very loyal, dedicated soldier in the army under David. And so David... um, gets Uriah drunk and sends him home to be with his wife, assuming that he'll sleep with her and that the pregnancy will then be assumed to be theirs. Now, of course, Bathsheba will know all about this, but Uriah will have been fooled and generally speaking, the nation will have been fooled. However, Uriah won't even go in the house. He feels like, well, my men don't get this privilege of coming home and being with their wives. Why should I enjoy this? So he sleeps on the doorstep and, and, you know, so David is stuck now. So he can't, um, you know, he's not able to sort of get this ruse to fly. So he writes a letter that describes his orders to the captains of the of the military that Uriah serves in. And the plan is that, uh, that um, Uriah is supposed to be up on the front lines with the captains, the captains and their soldiers back up so that Uriah will be killed by the enemy. That's David's plan. And he writes it out, rolls it up in a scroll, seals it, And as if that weren't bad enough, he gives it to Uriah to bring back up to the front lines to give to his commanders. So his commanders get this. They obey the orders. Uriah is killed. David then marries Bathsheba takes her his wife. And now he looks like a hero instead of the hypocrite that he actually is in this circumstance. It's horrific. It's terrible. Um, Later on, when the baby is born, uh, he ends up dying. And, and, you know... uh, David grieves over this child and everything, but um, but in 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 the during the term when she is pregnant, and that Nathan comes to David. Nathan, who's a prophet in Israel, comes to David, and he tells him a story about this guy who uh, was a next door neighbor to a rich man who lived next door to this poor guy who all he had was this little ewe lamb that was kind of like a pet, slept in his bed, ate at his table, and all this kind of thing. Well, the rich man. Um, had a party. And rather than kill one of his own lambs to feed the guests, he, t- he steals this goat from this poor man and slaughters it and feeds it to his guests and everything. Well, David hears this story and he is absolutely livid. David, you remember, was a shepherd. And so there's this tenderness in his heart for this kind of story. And he becomes indignant. And David, uh, Nathan then drops the other shoe and says, David, you're the man. You're the one who did this. And David is deeply convicted. Well, this experience of the conviction over his sin is articulated in Psalms 32 and 51. Uh, I'm not going to read all of those, uh, the text of those two Psalms, but I will commend you to read them. Uh, actually, Psalms, uh, Psalm 51 in particular, is a wonderful study on confession and the idea of, of recognizing and acknowledging, uh, you know, your sin and that kind of thing. Um, let me just read a few passages from it here. It starts with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. He's not appealing to his righteousness or his own works or his own sense of right standing before God. He's appealing entirely on the mercy and the loving kindness of God. Uh, He asks him to blot out his transgressions and to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, to cleanse him from his sin. The level of guilt that he's experiencing now for this is something that is driving him to now, rather than before, as we'll see in the psalm, it turns out he was hiding, or I think Psalm 32 actually talks about how his bones began to ache because he was carrying this sin and he couldn't tell anybody about it, but God knew about it, and so God sends the prophet to ultimately drive David to come clean to him and confess. And he acknowledges, verse 3, his transgression, his sin is always before him uh, against you and you only have I sinned, recognizing that even though he has sinned against Uriah, he's sinned against Bathsheba, he's sinned against God's people, he's ultimately and foremost he has sinned against God. Ultimately, at the end of the day, all sin is sin against God and there's no hiding it before him. Uh, and he goes on and he speaks about how he was brought forth in iniquity. He's born in sin. It's it's not, again, just that he sinned, but that he is by nature sinful. And that is, our, that is all of our predicament. Uh, famously, in verse 10, "'Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me.'" He calls out to God for full restoration to create in him a pure and clean heart. Uh, He goes on to say the one thing in this psalm that we really, in our New Testament context, indwelled permanently by the Holy Spirit, can't pray. But in David's context, in the Old Testament, prior to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he says these words Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then he'll go on to teach other transgressors of the grace of God in this. And so. In this psalm, we see David's cry for God's mercy, recognizing that his own righteousness, as Isaiah would put it, is filthy rags. There's nothing to it. There's, there's, there's no goodness whatsoever uh, in, in, in his own heart. And so he rests fully on the grace of God. And of course, uh, as I mentioned, Psalm 32 is the partner psalm uh, to this one. So read the two together and get the sense of David's heart and its brokenness before God over his sin. The reason I point that out, and the reason Paul points it out, is because here is a person who is in the most loathsome sin, and yet God is calling, or David is calling upon, or recognizing, I should say, the rich blessing of those to whom God does not impute their sin, but rather imputes righteousness. Clearly, David was not righteous by the works of the law. He's he's. in in that episode of his life, and there were others too, by the way. I mean, David is called a man after God's own heart because he never went after the false gods in that, but he did fall to sin. And so, but nonetheless, he's held up as a model of a a man who loved God and everything, which is remarkable when you consider the falls, the failures that he experienced. But that's grace. That is the grace of God in action, that even when we fall in the most horrific ways— humiliating, devastating failure. God's grace is sufficient to make us righteous with him. It's as if Paul is saying, look, let's look at the worst possible scenario of somebody falling in sin and that kind of thing, just to make sure we understand that righteousness cannot be by our works. And still, God can impute righteousness to that person. Now, we understand on this side of the cross that that righteousness ultimately is imputed because of the finished work of Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, having said all that, this will invariably lead some, maybe even some watching this. Certainly, there are are many uh, folks preaching uh, online that, that are really mixing dangerously law and grace because... The grace I've just described, which, again, I've pointed to Scripture. This is not my idea of what grace is. This is what grace is. This is what the Bible says grace is about. Um, But invariably, some will see that and say, well, that's too easy. It gives too much room to condone sin. Because after all, if it's really just like that, then I can just do whatever I want, and God can just impute righteousness to me. Uh, I can be saved, once saved and always saved, never lose my salvation, even though I might You know, just decide, well, since that's true, I'll just go out and sin and all that kind of a thing. Let me suggest to you that the answer to that question is not to change grace into some kind of a legalistic thing, to change grace from what it is into something else so that we don't take it for granted. We ought not take it for granted, but how we get to the point where we don't take it for granted. If we approach it from a legalistic standpoint, we've actually changed grace. Now, one of the reasons that Abraham is pointed to as the great example of one justified by faith and not by works is because he came before the law, which means, and and Paul, by the way, makes this point in chapter 3. I'll commend you to read chapter 3 of Romans again as well. But he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 is all about demonstrating our complete Uh, lostness and separation from God. There's none righteous. There's none that seek after God, all this kind of thing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and this kind of thing. Uh, Paul makes that point very, very strongly and then points to Abraham as the one who's justified outside of the law before the law was ever given. What that means is, and of course we see this example in David and his appeal to God's mercy and not justice and not based on his own works, Everybody who's ever been saved, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament era, has always been saved by God's grace, received by faith. And this is why we read Galatians 3, or the whole book of Galatians, really. This is why we study Romans. This is why we study the Old and New Testament, so we can understand the place of the law as a schoolmaster, Galatians 3 again, to point us to Christ so that we might recognize our lostness and our need to be saved, purely, wholly, and entirely, and saved and kept by his grace. If we change that message, because we're afraid people will, as Paul spoke to in Romans 6, you know, shall we therefore sin the more that grace might abound the more? He goes on and says, well, heaven forbid. No, of course not. Let it never be so. If somebody really understands, on the one hand, their destitute nature, their their destitute condition, their sinful nature, the fact that they're not just sinners because they sin, they sin because, because we are not there, because we're sinners. We are inherently this. This is what we are, not just what we do. We do because of what we are. And so therefore, we are sinful at the very heart of it. If we understand that, and then the next step, recognizing that there's no possible way that we can produce works of righteousness that will earn our salvation for us. If we finally come to that place and recognize that, then we would never even dream. Because of our deep appreciation for the grace of God that has lifted us out of the pit, put us on a rock, has washed us clean, has made us new, and puts us in a position we are held and kept by God until we see Him face to face one day. If we truly understood the depth of our depravity, and the grandness of God's grace, we would never approach grace with the mindset that I can just do whatever I want and sin and do all that kind of stuff, because after all, I'm just saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. If somebody has that mindset, they say they're a Christian, but they just go on sinning like it's no big deal, living in sin, practicing things that offend God, because after all, I'm saved by grace. What's the big deal? If that's your mindset, you really need to stop and, and, and search your heart, come clean before God and ask if you really are a believer. Now, that's not saying you need to do things to be saved. What I'm saying, though, is that that doesn't sound like somebody who has received the grace of God, or maybe they've received something that they think gives them freedom to do whatever they want. But the grace of God, if fully and rightly understood, produces a life of thanksgiving, a life of... Living in ways that bless and please God, not that offend Him and 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 drag His name through the mud. Um, if someone paid, as a matter of fact, Jesus told parables to this effect: If someone paid your debt that you could never imagine paying, the natural response to that is one of gratitude, um, giving ourselves over to Him and and even His service, just fully. Just Lord, what what can I do in response, Lord? Just please let me thank you in some way, not earning. Your salvation, but just living a life in response to it. Um, I I recognize what I've been saved from. I recognize, thankfully, what I'm saved to. Uh, It seems wholly unnatural to think that grace is a license for sin. No, grace is something to be appreciated and cherished and thankful for, and the natural response of somebody who recognizes their lost condition and their having now been granted a new life, not just a new lease on life, but a new life. Behold, if anyone's in Christ, is a new creation, all things pass away, all things become new. This is the place, the foundation, the overarching nature, the all pervasive beauty of God's forgiveness and grace. And so when Paul is teaching about this in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, where when we understand this idea uh, as Jesus taught it, as it's taught throughout the New Testament, uh, and then we begin to see the Old Testament in the light of that, uh, we recognize that this has always been God's means of saving people. It's always been by His grace and His mercy and His love and His uh, His desire to pull those who are destined on the road to destruction, to pull them off and put them on the road to everlasting life. And so it's so important that we understand and recognize this uh, because it is both, on the one hand, liberating. It is liberating to recognize that I no longer am going to hell. I'm no longer going to be separated from God, but I can experience the blessing of God, not only in terms of my eternity being altered, but in terms of my day-to-day living. I can stumble and fall, and God's grace will pick me up. That doesn't make me feel like I just want to run and stumble and fall over sin and everything, but I know that when I do, It's like Jesus washes me off, just dusts off my feet and everything. and just kind of puts me right back on the road. And it's always there. His grace is sufficient. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. I'm thankful for that. This is the point that Paul makes here when he talks about the blessedness that David speaks of to those to whom God does not impute sin, but rather imputes righteousness. So I'm going to stop right there. And um, um, we'll continue in our study in Romans. We'll also be continuing in our study in eschatology. Uh, on uh, how I think uh, things will shake out in these days that we're living in and the days to come here. So uh, we're gonna go back and forth. And yeah, Again, as we talk about eschatology, we talk about seeing Jesus, we talk about the kingdom coming and all those kinds of things, it's really important for us to keep the gospel at the center of that, both for our uh, our own selves to appreciate and just be so thankful for what God has done for us, but to be reminded of the importance of the gospel in sharing it with others, as we ultimately see the days described in Scripture coming upon us, so um, so hopefully we'll just keep a nice blend of those things going there together. We can all grow together and, and uh, encourage one another as we see the day coming. So praise the Lord. Well, uh, Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. We thank you for your forbearance. We thank you for your. Um, your loving kindness and patience and all of these things, Lord, that you demonstrate to us. Uh, the love that you have for us is something that is shocking. It is truly amazing along with your grace. Thank you for being merciful to us and not giving us what we, uh, what we really do deserve. Our, our sinful natures bring upon us uh, consequence and condemnation in that, but for Jesus. And so thank you that he came and he died for our sins once and for all on the cross and, and rose from the dead the third day. To Everlasting life, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, even when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit takes these prayers, these utterances, these groanings, and brings them before the Father. We thank you for the intimacy of relationship that you've called us to enjoy. Uh, no longer are we far off in enemies and rebels, but we're sons and daughters and friends, and we can dwell and even abide under the shadow of the Almighty Now. We can ascend to the hill, not because of our own righteousness but because you have given us a clean heart because of your righteousness that you've imputed to us. So help us to never take for granted that grace, but help us to always take advantage of the opportunities that your grace affords us to know you better, to dwell all the more deeply with you, to go into the the holy place, as it were, and to sit at the feet of the throne of grace. Father, we thank you, we love you, and praise you for all that you've done for us. Help us as students of your word to never lose sight of the beauty of the fullness of your forgiveness and grace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.